world, but he loses his own soul. This is not it. By faith, we look back and we look ahead and we look around and we hear the voice of God and the Holy Spirit as he speaks to us of his faithfulness to his people. It says, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in the deserts and the mountains and in dens in the caves of the earth. Though they were commended for their faith, they did not yet receive, if we continue reading, they did not yet receive that which was promised, for we with them will receive it in its fullness together. All these saints in glory are witnesses to and give testimony to this first century Christian church, Jewish believers, gives testimony to the object of our faith. As we look over the shoulder of these suffering Jews and we read this letter of encouragement, we continue in that faith which God gives us by the preaching of his word to abide in that which cannot be shaken. And we'll pick up that word again in our text a little lower. These early believers lived in a world of competing ideas, philosophies, and religions. They were confronted in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution. Their eyes and their hearts were in tune with the world around them and what was happening. And everybody offers something that will satisfy, a panacea to relieve you. And there were things you could do. You could capitulate and you could give in to the government or whoever was persecuting oftentimes. And the persecutions would cease. But they had a better life. They looked on to that which is superior. Briefly, I just want to cover a few of the argument God makes for the superiority of Christ. And therefore, our just faith in him. Compared to the prophets who spoke, it says that Jesus is a better spokesman than the prophets. They spoke, God spoke, to the prophets in times past. But he says in these days he's spoken to us through his son. Well, who is his son? John tells us he's the Logos. He is the word of God. For God said, let light shine out of darkness. Though the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Jesus told those around him, he said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He is the uh, ultimate spokesman for God. Jesus has a better name, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. When I thought about that, I couldn't help but think of Philippians chapter 2, if you're tracking with me. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Yes, Jesus is much better than the angels, for to which of the angels did God ever say, 
You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Or again, the father calls from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Now, that's not in Hebrew, but it's in the Bible. Jesus is better than Moses. Why? Because Moses was a servant in the household of God. But Jesus was a son in the household of God. And so we read in 2.3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Why? Because Moses was a servant in the household, uh, uh, in the household but Jesus is a son. Now, I've spent some time in my building experience with uh, building houses for Jewish people. And in my conversation, in my time in Israel, I realized that they don't typically go back to Abraham where the promise was given. They typically go back to Sinai and to Moses where the law was given. That's their identity. That's what separates them and distinguishes them from the other peoples of the earth. But Moses was only a, a son, a servant in the household. Jesus was a son. Jesus offers a better rest. Then Joshua, the children of Israel, these, the, the uh, uh, children of Israel and the, the forefathers of these Jewish believers, they look back perhaps to Joshua. He says for, in 4.8, it says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another time later. The Lord, and then I couldn't help but think of this, looking ahead to a, a, more, a more perfect rest. And I couldn't help but think of David in the Old Testament. He says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. And at the very end, he says, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That was his immediate experience as a, as a king, as a shepherd, or as a shepherd boy. And he was looking forward because of the promises of God. He understood there's a day coming when I'll be in the presence of the Lord in his household forever. Is this the confidence that we live in? Not in ourselves, not in our strength, our intellects, our finances, our ability, but in the glorious God who holds us and maintains our very existence by the power of his word. Jesus is a better high priest than Aaron, whose priesthood was temporary. Where's Aaron today? Well, he's, I believe he's in glory, but he's not here. He died and he went to be with the Lord. But Jesus is living, and he's present here this morning in the person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, off, and he says he's better because, Jesus is better because his, it says, okay, speaking of, and he says also in another place, you are a priest forever, Aaron temporary, Jesus permanent. Again, the superiority of Christ and why he can be trusted over returning to Jesus because he's after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus offers a better hope. This is in chapter 7, 18 through 19. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Parenthesis, for the law made nothing perfect. End of parenthesis. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we by which we draw near to God. This makes Jesus the guarantor, or guarantor of a better covenant. I spoke with a young man last night. Uh, we knew him as a child. Uh, 
father's Israeli, his mother's American, long story short. Um, uh, he's a believer. His mother's a believer. We knew her uh, 25, 30 years ago. But because of her association with Israel, she couldn't come to visit us yesterday because it was the Sabbath. Now, her son told us she believes in the divinity of Christ, but she keeps or tries to keep the law. Uh, he ascribes to it sanctification. She feels like she's justified by faith, but she's trying to keep the law as an act of sanctification. But we've come to one who is living, who provides that which we cannot provide for ourselves. We have a greater access, <coughs> we have a greater assurance by greater access. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, not the sanctuary, which is gone. Anybody know where the sanctuary is? It's gone. The temple is gone. It was destroyed in 70 A.D. But there's a heavenly sanctuary, and we enter there by the blood of Jesus, not of goats and bulls that could never take away sin, but by the blood of the, our high priest and our sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> For every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. His work of redemption was done. And his work of the high priest, intercessor, began. So we have this confidence, a great confidence, where we might enter boldly by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the veil, that is through his flesh. And since we have a, uh, have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We don't have to shrink back in fear. And that's going to be part of that concluding text because Jesus has paid the way and we are hid in Christ. Now, if you would turn to Genesis Oh, before we go there, in verse 25, it says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. We come together this morning, we say God is here, he is speaking, he spoke to them, he's speaking to us, and he says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. And I think this ties directly into the text that we're going to approach later. But there's one more warning and one more story that God gives, and it's found in Genesis 25, 29 through 34. Genesis 29, I mean 25, 29 through 34. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came out of the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of the red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Decision time. Esau said, I'm about to die. I'm suffering. I'm exhausted. I'm weary. I'm hungry. I'm about to die. Of what use is my birthright to me now? Jacob said, swear to me now 
So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. I wonder how long that lasted. And he ate and he drank and he rose and he went his way. And then this epithet. Thus Esau despised his birthright. According to Simon Kiestemarker, Esau had no regard for God's blessing and promise, which he, as the firstborn, would receive. He despised his birthright and displayed utter indifference to the spiritual promises which he had as the firstborn and he would have received. He despised and displayed un, un, uh, utter indifference to the spiritual promises God had made to his grandfather and to his father. So we pick up again in Hebrews 12, uh, moving from Genesis, and this, where we, this is, comes from there. It says, where God warns them not to be defiled, he's talking about these Jewish believers, not to be defiled in anything, or like, and he speaks of immorality and other things, bickerings and all kinds of things, but here's the point. He says, but like unholy Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. There are some stark warnings, some scary warnings in the book of Hebrews. I took the one out of uh, chapter 10, after we, all of the promises of being able to enter into the presence of God through the veil of Christ, I copied that section, a warning where it talks about rejecting and trampling underfoot the blood of Christ. And I sent it to my children. Why? Because I love them. And I want them to take here, I want them to hear from God. And I'm not saying they all need to repent of anything in particular, but it's just we need to hear that. That we have a God and we need to stay before him transparent and confessed up like we did this morning. And so here we have our text and it follows right after this warning uh, concerning uh, Esau. And this temporal meal, single meal, keep that in your mind, a single meal and drink. He says, for you have not come to what may be touched, physical things. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message may be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. And here it is. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. And indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now this is... Moses called up to the mountain. He's told to call the people together. God's going to give, his, uh, ten, give the Ten Commandments, give his law to Moses for the people. But the mountain shook. It was covered with smoke. There was lightning. and Some people say it was volcanic. Some people say it was, they got all explanations. But the people there in that day knew that was, this was a manifestation of the God of all creation. And it scared them to death. Even Moses the friend of God to whom God spoke face to face. He was frightened and terrified. Keep that picture, that mountain in mind. 
He says, you've not come to this and can be touched, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Where does, where does, where does the story of redemption begin? Well, it begins before creation, but in creation, where does it begin? In creation, in the Garden of Eden. Where does it end? It ends with God coming down and the new Jerusalem coming down, and we have a garden scene where God will dwell with his people in the midst of them. They will be, he will be their God, and they will be his people. This is what he's pointing to, but he's saying to these believers, we've come now. We've come today by faith to, the new, to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. And we've come to what? Listen to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and the sprinkled blood that speaks, and here it is again, a better word than the blood of Abel. Here Calvin says, in regarding this in commentary, that God is, fights now with a new argument. For he's going through Hebrews. This is when he gets to chapter 12. He says he fights with a new argument, for he proclaims the greatness of the grace made known by the gospel. Continuing with Calvin, then let us first remember that the gospel here is compared with the law or contrasted with the law. And secondly, there are two parts in this comparison, and here they are, that God's glory displays itself more illustriously not that he doesn't display his glory in the law, but he displays himself more illustriously in the gospel than in the law. And that his invitation now is full of love. But that formerly there was nothing but the greatest terror. Someone has said Mount Sinai speaks of death and terror and horror. The new Jerusalem speaks of life and joy because we have been drawn into the presence of Christ. It's amazing, isn't it? It's, a, it's amazing our propensity to turn back and rely on ourselves to achieve right standing with God. In other words, to return to the law, to return to Sinai. Paul puts it this way in the book of Galatians where he's combating the Judaizers. In chapter 4, he says, Tell me, you who deserve, who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while of the free woman was born through promise. I wish we had time to go back and pick up all of these loose threads, promises and endurance and all of the things, the greater, better things. Paul continues, now this may be interpreted allegorically these women are two covenants one is from mount sinai bearing children for slavery she is hagar now hagar is mount sinai and this is an allegory mount sinai in arabia she corresponds to the present jerusalem when this was written paul is writing the present jerusalem where the the jews god's chosen people are bound up in the legalism in self-achievement of the law. And they weren't free. They crucified the Christ. He says, but 
uh, Hagar is Mount Sinai, Arabia, corresponds to the present Jews. Here she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Picking up again. Going back through verses, Hebrew 12, verses beginning at verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. But God, this is from Ephesians, but God, being rich in mercy, began because of the great love wherewith he loved us. Even when we were dead, we're enslavement to sin. I talked to this young man, and he was talking about free will. I said, the Bible always talks about being dead or enslaved or blind to sin. You think you have free? That's not what the Bible teaches. We're in bondage to these things. But he has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Yes, God is with us this morning. But because we are in Christ Jesus, we are seated in the heavenly places. We stand here in the presence of God, and we're represented by our high priest in the heavenly places. We are his children. We are the sheep of his pasture. We are the ones that he's lovingly bestowed his graces upon. But not only, <clears throat> but even as we meet, him this, meet with him this morning, we have passed through the veil of his flesh and sit with conf confidently in the presence of a thrice holy God because we are hid in Christ. And he says, and we come into this morning into an innumerable uh, angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The angels, and I don't know how many angels are in heaven, but the angels are worshiping God. They worship those elect angels have worshiped him from before the creation. And not only are these angels, but it says Jesus has gathered himself an assembly of all whose names, it says enrolled, but it says in Revelation, whose names are written in the book of life. He has gathered this assembly, and we sit with him in the heavenlies. And to God, the judge of all. And yet in this context, when he says that God, God the judge of all, he's not speaking in the terror and the fear. On, on Mount Sinai, God didn't come as a judge. He came as a lawgiver. But because they couldn't keep the law which, to which they were accountable, they had to stand before a judge. Do you know that one day, literally, we'll, we'll stand before the judge? But we don't come in fear because we, will, we have been hidden in Christ. In Mount Sinai, God, <clears throat> we are gathered before the, this morning before the judge and can do so with confidence because Jesus, God made Jesus sin that we might be made the righteousness of God. We have perfect standing in Christ and in Christ alone. And into the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Who are these? One commentator says these are the saints of the Old Testament. Another said, no, these are the saints of the New Testament. I agree with the one who includes them all. 
These are people, uh, God's people, throughout redemptive history who have access to God because of their faith and that faith being reckoned to them as righteousness or perfection. And not that there's one thing better than the other, but we're gathered to the Lord Jesus Christ, the mediator, and to his sprinkled blood, which speaks greater than the blood of Abel. Now, Abel, if you go back in chapter 11, he was, he was a righteous man. His faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. And yet, his brother slew him. His blood was spilled out and demanded vengeance. But Jesus' blood is spilled out and it cries out forgiveness. This is what we're gathered to this morning. This is he who we are gathered to this morning. In Hebrews 3, 7, we've heard from the Father through the prophets. We've heard uh, from the Father through the Son. Don't want to leave out the Holy Spirit. We worship a triune God. In Hebrews 3, 7, it says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, as the Holy Spirit, the God, the Holy Spirit says to us this morning, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And he goes to talk about the children of Israel in their rebellion. Finally, we see in verses 25 through 27, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns for heaven. And at that time, looking back to Mount Sinai, at that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but I will shake the heavens. If you go to Matthew, uh, when Jesus talks about his second coming, he says he's going to shake the heavens. And all the principalities and powers and the things that dwell in the earth and on the earth will fall down before him. This phrase, once more, indicates a removal of things that are shaken. These are physical things, things that have been made in order that, that things that cannot be shaken might remain. These early Hebrew Christians, he, he commended them for their faith because they had a better possession, one that would remain, one that would not be shaken. Sproul says, God's voice speaking the gospel must be heard with even greater attention and faith than the law spoken at Sinai. I'm going to give the conclusion. I've got, if you look at your bulletin, I'll give it now before we sing our song. The response. What do we respond, how do we respond to all that's been said here? I'll let the scripture speak. In verse 8, it says, 28, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And then, and thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. God has not changed. I hear people talk about, and they'll tell you, so, I love the God of the New Testament. I don't like the one of the Old Testament. 
It's the same God, and he's not changed. He's a consuming fire. I like what one brother said one time. He was speaking of the sacrifices in the Old Testament versus the New Testament. He said when they would bring their sacrifices and offer them, the fire from heaven would consume the sacrifice. But brothers and sisters, when Jesus was sacrificed, he consumed the fire. That's who we've come to this morning. Let us sing, oh, worship the king. Stand with me, number two. Just the first four verses. 